Our passage this morning is from Hosea 11, 7 through 9. Please turn there in your Bible and follow along as I read. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles placed under the chairs in front of you. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I am thankful to be here. I'm thankful to see many of y'all's bottom half of your faces. And uh, for those of you that have been wearing a mask and are not this morning, remember, you do have to smile sometimes. And it is helpful to me when I see you smile. So um, no reformed grimaces out there this morning, all right? Okay, uh, we're starting a new series this morning. It's called Great Expectations, Minor Prophets. Uh, and so we've been in the New Testament, Testament for quite some time. Uh, and uh, much like last summer series, we're diving back into the Old Testament. I love uh, preaching the Old Testament. It's uh, one of my favorite uh, acts of study and preaching. Um, one little word of warning, um, and uh, this isn't super serious, but for those of you who have children in the service, uh, when you dive into the prophets at any point, uh, there's sometimes PG-13 material. Now, I won't necessarily try to be crass on purpose, okay? But they deal with topics and subjects that might raise questions at lunchtime, so just prepare your hearts, or as they might say in the Bible, gird your loins for that. Um, and so I just wanted to, to make that little comment and that little note and uh, let me pray for us, and we'll jump into the sermon. Father, I declare the truth that your Spirit is here, and it is resting upon us. We don't have to do anything to receive it. We don't have to be a certain kind of person. We simply have to be in Christ, and we are empowered to listen this morning. We're empowered to understand. We're empowered to hear the very words of God. And so I pray that you'd help me to move out of the way of that, I pray that whatever study I have done this week, whatever words are mine would waste away, but the words that are yours, you'd have all of us here, would be like a spark in our hearts this morning. So I pray as we dive into the book of Hosea that we would understand your love, we'd understand our sin, we'd understand who Jesus is and what he has done for both of those things. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Um, it's been a bit since we've been in the Old Testament. So let me set the stage. Um, uh, what's going on? When we're reading in the Old Testament, we're reading into a certain context. And so let me start here. When we're in the Old Testament, we're talking generally about the ancient Israelites, the ancient Israelites. The ancient Israelites were the people of God. Uh, he had rescued them from Egypt, and just after he had done that, he set an agreement with them. It's called a covenant. So here's a quick summary of what that looks like. In Exodus 19, here's what God says to the Israelites. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you see the agreement? I've saved you already, and here's how I desire you to live. And so at this point, uh, here's what the Israelites respond. And, And just a few verses later, the people answered together, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they lived happily ever after. Not so much, okay? Not so much. It got real rough for a long time. And so God gave them the moral, the ceremonial, the the civil law. And the idea behind the covenant is this. I have shown you grace. I have shown you mercy. If you obey, everything will be hunky-dory. And if you don't, it won't be hunky-dory. That's in the Hebrew, in case you're wondering. Um, At every turn, church, at every turn, the Israelites disobeyed. They worshiped other gods. They did the opposite of what Jesus, excuse me, God asked them to do. The opposite. And so what happens is God eventually brings them to the promised land, and the Israelites ask for a human king. And so we have this long line of kings, and they go through a cycle of bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king. And they're, they're really, uh, the criteria by which they're judged is how well do they conform to the covenant. It's all about the covenant. The agreement that God gave to the people after bringing them out of Egypt. And so eventually, what happens is the kingdoms are divided. We have Israel in the north. We have Judah in the south. And and they are continuing on this journey of of things not being hunky-dory and in the two different kingdoms. And so what we have here is as they're disobeying, could God have wiped them out? Absolutely, he could have. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden. They they ate the fruit. What could God have done in that moment? He could have wiped them off the face of the earth and started over, but he doesn't. Instead, God is patient with the Israelites. He's patient. And what he does throughout the, the time of the kingdoms is he sends word. He sends messengers to say, turn back from your evil ways. Come back to God. And those messengers are called prophets. And so when we get into the prophets, We're talking about minor prophets this summer. I'll tell you in a moment what that means. Uh, We're talking about these messengers, these messengers from God. Uh, One of my favorite resources on the Old Testament prophets is by a Jewish scholar named Abraham Heschel, and here's his definition of a prophet. The prophet was an individual who said no to his society, condemning its habits and assumptions, It's complacency, waywardness, and syncretism. That means taking other religions and making it part of their own. He was often compelled to proclaim the very opposite of what his heart expected. His fundamental objective was to reconcile God to man. That's what a prophet is. And so we have these messengers from God. And they came to Israel at a very specific time in history to a very specific people. And they had a very specific message for those people, and that message was from God. That's what, a, that's what a prophet is. So as we read the prophet Hosea, he was in Israel, northern, the northern kingdom, at this time for those people. He had a very specific message. But in God's wisdom and power and inspirational might, these messages have what they call a fuller meaning. A fuller meaning. So it's not just for the Israelites. It's also good news for you and for me. And so that's why we can read the prophets and gain something from it. Because God was, through Hosea, speaking to those Israelites, but He's also speaking to Ransom and speaking to all of you, all of us as His people. 
Uh, I thought this would be helpful. We're going to be in the prophets all summer. Uh, you don't have to write this down, but these are some characteristics that Abraham Heschel sets out in his book. And I think it's just helpful to understand the kind of things we're going to be hearing this summer from the prophets. And so here's some characteristics you can expect from these prophets. First of all, they're highly sensitive to evil. They're highly sensitive to evil. He says at one point in his book, they rave as if the whole world is a slum. So they're not like even-handed in their language. They talk about evil like it's the worst thing ever. They're highly sensitive to it. Like God, every little molecule of evil offends them deeply. A little minor injustice in the human eyes has cosmic consequences that we'll see in the prophets. I love this quote. Here's what Heschel has to say. Prophecy is the voice that God has lent to the silent agony, a voice to the plundered poor, to the profaned riches of the world. That's what the prophet sees. The prophet also looks at the crowd or the, the, the people in the nation, and although few are guilty, and many times the majority is guilty, he sees that all are responsible. That's what we're going to see in the prophets. And so we see this sense of community responsibility. So you'll get these sweeping allegations. All of you are this way. Now, is that technically true? No. But as a society, God wanted his people together to work towards holiness. And so we get these kind of um, exaggerated uh, statements from the prophets. You expect that. Uh, the prophet sought not just good for the people, but the best. He, he didn't settle. He wouldn't settle like God wouldn't settle just for, okay, we're doing better now. He, he sought what God sought, which was the ultimate good. And so what we see in that is uh, he did not seek material wealth of the people, where the people of Israel thought, well, we're rich. What more could we want? Or the appearance of good. Well, things seem to be good. No, he wanted good in every level of, of, of their society. And so one way you might see that is the people will talk about how beautiful Jerusalem is, and the prophet will come in and say, yeah, but really it's rotten to the core. Although things appeared to be good, at its base level, not good. Because they sought the ultimate good, the prophet speaks in what he calls, I love this, luminous and explosive language. So he's intent on intensifying responsibility. The prophet, you'll find, is impatient with excuse, contemptuous of self-pity. So, well, I didn't mean to. He's like, yeah, no, that's not, that's not what we're here to hear, okay? And last, it's a great word. You can use this at work sometime this week, okay? Iconoclast, which means idol breaker, okay? That's what the, the prophet is, an iconoclast. The, the prophet would come into a society, challenge everything that they thought was holy, everything they revered, everything they found awe in. He wanted to break it all down and bring them back to who? God. That's what a prophet does. And so in some sense, we can expect this to be done in our hearts as well. The, the Bible is split into major and minor prophets. It doesn't mean that the minor prophets are less than, like they're the JV prophet team. No, it just means they were shorter. They were shorter in one scroll. And so we're going to be going through in, the, in how they appear in the Christian Bible, all the minor prophets this summer. So enough of that college class. What is Hosea about? What's Hosea about? I mentioned this briefly. <clears throat> Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom. They call him a deathbed prophet because he was a prophet in Israel at their very end. And so Assyria is bearing down. They're about to be conquered in this brutal conquest. And Hosea is the last and final word of God to Israel before that goes down. And so what's going to happen 
after Hosea in 722, Assyria comes in, it's really nasty, and Israel is removed from the land. It's a consequence for their ongoing and basically the whole entirety of their history with God, the breaking of the covenant. There's consequences to that. Things weren't hunky-dory. And so what are the sins of Israel that Hosea brings to light? There's political and spiritual idolatry. So in Israel at this time, there are two political factions. There's a pro-Egyptian faction who's saying, listen, Assyria's coming. If we're going to stand up against this, let's go back to Egypt. Do you see the irony of this? What is, what is the covenant based on? God saved them from Egypt. They have God on their side who, who smote the Egyptians on the mountainside in a sense. And what are they thinking? If we go back to Egypt, they'll save us from Assyria. And then you have the other half of the, of the uh, kingdom, which is saying pro, they're pro-Assyria. They're like, listen, let's just give in. Let's just give in. Let's give them all, whatever they want and things will be fine. This is seen by Hosea as no trust in God. No trust in God. And although we might see, well, that's just kind of a practical political thing. Remember, the prophet sees things at its very core and it's very exaggerated. So he sees these opinions about politics as extremely sinful against God. More so than their political idolatry, there is spiritual idolatry. First of all, you see throughout the book that, that many Israelites were uh, involved in corrupt business dealings. They were stealing money through business from their neighbors to build bigger houses and things like that. But most importantly, uh, Israel was steeped in practicing Baal worship and other Canaanite cults, which had to do with fertility. I won't go into the details here. But they wanted rain, they wanted crops, and they wanted wealth. And the way to do that was to worship these Canaanite gods in a way that, that um, promoted that. And so what did God choose to do through Hosea? What did God choose to do? God chose to reflect the relationship that he had experienced with Israel through Hosea. He picked Hosea because he loved a woman named Gomer. Now, I know what I think. I think of Gomer Pyle instantly, so just get it out of the way. This is not someone who carries one bullet in their pocket, okay? This is, uh, the name's Gomer, but it is a, a young woman whom Hosea loves. And, and it was interesting for me this week to learn about their marriage, to learn about their relationship. I think many times those of us who've been um, around the church a long time may have some assumptions about Gomer when they got married, but I learned this week that she was not likely a prostitute when they got married. She was not a prostitute. In fact, the way you read the first few verses of Hosea, we learn that he loved Gomer, but she had a promiscuous heart. She had a tendency towards those kinds of sins. And so as we look at their marriage, um, it started well. It started well. They likely were in love. They likely were committed to one another. They had a child named Jezreel. And as the scripture tells us, it's Hosea's son. But as, we, as the scripture goes on, she has more children, but Hosea is not their father. Hosea is not their father. See where things are going? Now, let me just say this. Marriage is not the point of this book. It's not a marriage book. God uses marriage, much like our own marriages, to reflect it's a sign of God's fidelity towards us. You can read Ephesians 5 if you want to read more about that. Our marriages are a reflection of something greater, something eternal that God gives to us. But this morning, for this illustration to be meaningful, there's a few truths we have to understand. For the illustration of Hosea and Gomer to be meaningful to us, there's a few things we really need to grasp. First of all, Hosea really loved Gomer. He really did. It wasn't this begrudging marriage that he participated in because God said so. He loved Gomer. 
He loved Gomer. And Hosea really did have his heart broken again and again whenever she wandered away. And when she wandered away, Hosea really wanted his wife back. These are the realities of Hosea. They're the realities of it. And so, let me give you an example, in case you're like, yeah, right, Ransom. Well, here's the deal. Hosea 3, whatever has happened in Gomer's life, she's gone wayward again, and she's somehow fallen into some form of slavery. There's not a lot of details here. But listen to what God tells Hosea to do in Hosea 3. The Lord said to me, Hosea, go again, show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So God says, go, show your love to Gomer again. And here's what Hosea did. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and nine bushels of barley. He bought his own wife back. He bought her back. Listen, I know that there, as adults, all of us, many of us, I won't say all of us, many of us had a brush with adultery one way or another. Okay, we've all had an experience where we've been adjacent to it, maybe part of it. And so I know that as we talk about these things, there are real feelings for us attached. Maybe hurt, maybe anger, maybe guilt, maybe panic or fear. But listen, for this passage to make sense to us, for God to reach our hearts in this, we have to realize that there were real emotions involved between Hosea and Gomer. And it's good for us to have real emotions involved as we think about that relationship. And so if you are having a hard time right now because of the, the topic, hang in there. This is just the context. We're about to get to the two-point sermon, okay? Two-point sermon today. We're about to get there. And there's truth here for all of us. So here's the first point. Gomer represents Israel. That's the first point. Gomer represents Israel. Israel. Look at verse 7 from our passage. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. What, what, is, what is the deserved reaction from God's eyes of Israel for their constant abandonment? Remember the covenant. Remember the covenant. I will be your people. I will be your God. You will be my people if you obey. So they've disobedience, 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 disobedience. And so what God is saying here is, this, this is too much. Listen to Hosea 4. Here's, you get this sense of the cosmic consequences of sin from here. Hear the word of the Lord, O ch children of Israel, says Hosea. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Listen to the cosmic consequences. Therefore, the land itself mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, even the fish of the sea, are taken away. Big deal. It's a big deal where Israel's found itself. And see how it connects to Hosea and Gomer. My people consult their wooden idols, it says later in chapter 4, and their divining rods inform them, for a spirit of promiscuity leads them astray. They act promiscuously in disobedience to their God. Here's what we're trying to get at. Here's the whole point of Hosea and Gomer. How Gomer has treated Hosea is how Israel has treated God. 
constant wayward leaving, constant turning to other loves. How Gomer has treated Hosea is how Israel has treated God. It says in several places how Israel's love is fleeting. In, in one scripture, it says it's like the morning dew. So the dew shows up overnight, but as the sun rises, it evaporates like that. Or a cloud, it rolls in in the evening, and as the sun comes up, it's gone. So is Israel's love for God. And so what does Hosea see? As the prophet who's looking at Israel, who has this relationship with his wife, what does he see? What seemed like practical political sense or even practical religion, what does Hosea see? He, says adul- he sees adultery toward God, and he calls it what it is. What is acceptable and normal within God's people at this time, he sees as a wrenching of God's heart, a breaking of God's heart. And, and how can he say that? How can he know this? How can he communicate these things? Because he lives it. Do you see that? Hosea lives this experience. God uses that heartbreaking experience of Hosea and Gomer to, to show the bigger picture, which is Israel. Excuse me, Gomer represents Israel. Now here's where we get personal. Church, we are the new Israel. You can see that in the New Testament. And here's what I want, to, I want you to hear this morning. Every single one of us, every single one of us is a Gomer. I'm a Gomer. How can you say that? Listen, no one here can say, well, at least I never. That's not how that works. We can't look down at Gomer and be like, well, at least I haven't done that. Listen, all of our sin, do you hear this? This is what Israel has to hear. All of our sin is adultery toward God. All of it. Think about the confession of sin we just did a few moments ago. We don't confess our sin because we feel bad. It's not why we do it. Why do we confess sin? Because it's a violation of our relationship with God. So that's the bad news. We are all gomers. You ready for some good news? (laughs) The good news is that Hosea represents God. So look at verse 8. Now we have to read this, imagining ourselves in Hosea's shoes. Although... Gomer has betrayed his trust, his genuine love for his wife when he sees her again after he's redeemed her with silver and barley. This is the same thing that God feels, but in more perfect ways as he sees Israel. So look at verse 8. After saying, I will not raise them up at all, listen to God's declaration. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This is not a mistake in the print. This is not out of character for God. It's not this curmudgeon Old Testament God who suddenly uh, you know, has had a, a moment of mercy. No, this is God. This is God's irrepressible love for His people. Irrepressible. It can't be stopped. This is also the love of Jesus Christ. For his people. Remember, we talk about this in the Old Testament. It's not that Jesus was doing something completely new. He turned on the lights. God's love is the same in Hosea as it is when Jesus is dying on the cross for our sins. And we get a glimpse of it right here in verses 8 and 9. So we have this tension between verse 7 and 8, don't we? 
We have this tension even here in this room between our sin, God's holiness, and his love. There's a tension. I go to a book called Gentle and Lowly. It's by Dane Ortland, and he, it's a expounding upon Matthew 11 where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit. It's one of the only places in Scripture that Jesus gives us a glimpse of his heart. And so what he does is he goes through the Old Testament, he goes through the Reformed teachers, and he shows us how God's love is gentle and lowly towards us. And here's what he has to say. Just as we can hardly fathom the divine ferocity awaiting those out of Christ, it is equally true that we can hardly fathom the divine tenderness already resting now on those in Christ. Divine tenderness. So Christian, listen to me when I say, when we sin, when we sin, the very heart of Christ is drawn toward us in compassion. When we sin, Christian, when we sin, because we're in Christ, the very heart of Christ is drawn towards us in compassion. As my kids would say, what is this, Dad? Opposite day? What is this, opposite day? Because what, what happens when I sin? When I sin, I hear things like this. What were you thinking, Ransom? Again? Come on. Or at the very least, he doesn't say anything. He just turns away from me. That's how I think of God, wrongfully. Now here's the deal. God's holiness burns hot against sin. His holiness burns hot against sin for good reason. Sin isn't good for us. Sin is a betrayal of our Creator. It's the path to death. But listen to this again from Dane Ortland. Christ's holy heart finds evil revolting more than we ever could. But it is that very same holiness that draws His heart out to help and relieve and protect and comfort. This is what Hosea 11, 8, and 9 reveals. It's like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. In the depths of Israel's betrayal, verse 7, how does God lash out in love, verse 8? In the midst of their sin, in verse 7, God's heart warms with compassion for His people, verse 8. Derek Kidner says it this way, this passage tells us more about God than any lifeless theological definition could. Scripture cares about and teaches theology, but it never takes the warmth out of love the fire out of anger, or the audacity out of grace. So listen to this, church. God loves us in unexpected ways. Look at verse 9. I will not execute my burning anger. That's a surprise. I will not again destroy Ephraim. That's a surprise. For I am God, not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. How often do we spend time weighing and measuring God in our own terms, by our own criteria? We think God treats us like we treat others when they wrong us. We think God treats us like, like others have treated us when we wrong them. God is perfect. And He loves us in perfect love. And to us as imperfect people, it's unexpected. He is not a man, He says. God, operate, God operates on a different plane than us in His holiness and His emotions. Yes, God has emotions. They're perfect. Listen to this. It's from another scholar this week. Unlike man's, God's anger and compassion may not be manipulated, but are subject only to his infinite wisdom, his holy intentions, and his perfect will. That means his anger and his love don't depend on you or me. They depend on him, his love, 
His holiness. So the message I have for all of, this, all of us this morning, whether you're a Christian or a not, not a Christian this morning, is that in Christ, in Christ, hear that, in Christ, we are perfectly loved by a perfectly holy God. Perfectly loved by a perfectly holy God. And what does that perfect love look like? It looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross in our place. And so as we come to the Lord's table and we see this bread and we eat it and we see the juice or the wine and we drink it, what is it a reminder of? Perfect love. Perfect love. Listen to Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the godly, not for the cleaned up, not for the strong. While we were weak, Christ died for us. And it goes on. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so this morning, we eat not because we're great. <laughs> we eat and drink not because we've made it, we've done it. We eat and drink because we are sinners saved by grace. And in our sin that we've all even participated in this morning, what does the heart of God do for us? When we sin and we're in Christ, He draws towards us in warm and tender compassion. And He says, eat and drink. Have grace. And so this morning, who should participate? If you, like me, are a gomer, and you recognize that, and a grace, don't laugh. I told you not to think that. If you're a gomer, you, you're, you're wayward in your heart toward God. I am. But you know there's only one way to remedy that, and that is to trust in Jesus Christ. The one way to salvation the one way to be forgiven of those sins that we, we participate in regularly. That's why we confess. We say, God, I've done it again. And he says, I love you. I forgive you. If you believe those things, if you've pro professed that publicly, you've been baptized, you are welcome to come and participate. And God welcomes you with a warm and tender, compassionate heart this morning. If you have a sin in your life, you're saying, no way. Hands off, Lord. Or, if you don't believe any of these things to be true, the Bible makes it clear, it's unwise for you to participate. It gives a strong warning against that. So I would echo that. If you don't believe that Jesus is the only hope for you, or you have a sin in your life, you refuse to, to confess, this is not for you. I, I would ask you not to participate. So we're going to do, just for a moment, we're going to evaluate our hearts. We're going to Spend a few moments in silence. I'll gather us back together in a prayer of blessing, and then I'll invite the elders forward, and we'll participate in the Lord's Supper. So just take a few moments and thank the Lord for his compassion. Father, in your grace, heal our gaping wounds. Father, in your grace, remind us that we are sinners of the lowest order. In your grace, remind us 
of just how much it cost you to save us from that sin. And in your grace, give us confidence. As Steve said earlier, we don't come to this table with our tail between our legs. We come in confidence knowing that in Jesus Christ we are reckoned as a son and daughter of God. And so this morning as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, I pray that it would be a nourishing event to us that because of the presence of Christ through the power of the Spirit, we would be nourished in grace. For those of us who have sinned, even this morning, give us the energy, give us the strength, give us the confidence in who you are and what you have done and your confident love based on your wisdom and your holiness to move forward and confess and to mortify, to kill those sins in our life. Why? Because it makes you love us more? No, you can't. You can't love us more. But because you love us all the way now, may we respond to that love in that way. And so bless this time, bless this bread, bless this juice or wine, and I pray, God, that it would be a unifying, encouraging, empowering, nourishing event for us this morning. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.